Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. All right, well, welcome everybody um, to another uh, Edible Alpha podcast. Today we have uh, a company I've worked with actually for God, quite a long time, probably about five years almost, I think, Mark and Jim. Um, I can remember I can remember you sitting in my office in Milwaukee at that time with Fab Wisconsin, um, and I was trying to get you to sign up for our accelerator program. So I've got uh, I've got Mark uh, Catone and Jim Rush from uh, from Clean Beam, and uh, just you know the high level Clean Beam's you know product line is a uh, pulse ultraviolet light. Uh, um, you know. I'm going to say footwear sanitizing system. That's that was the program I worked with Mark and and Jim on. But I'm I'm not doing it justice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to to Mark and Jim and let them sort of introduce themselves a little bit and uh, and talk a little bit about Clean Beam so that you get a better idea of of everything that Clean Beam work, uh, works on today. Sounds good. Well, I'll start. This is Mark Catone. I'm one of the original founders of Clean Beam. And as Brad said, we started Clean Beam uh, based on a dry footwear sanitizer, uh, which you know today is unheard of. Basically, uh, today everybody's using chemicals, and th- the starting point for us was to create a uh, a safer environment for employees using electronics, or in this case, a pulsed ultraviolet light. Um, our technology is actually called the Dry Zap. Um, and, and that's that's where this all started about five years ago, as Brad said. Um, we're expanding that dramatically now to an entire solution using the dry zap technology to uh, create, you know, a biosecurity safety zone uh, for going into sensitive areas, uh, mainly food plants, um, pharmaceutical plants, even medical facilities, bottling facilities. So we're, we've expanded this uh, solution so that we can protect the perimeter of these of these facilities and create uh, a, a security zone so there aren't any breaches. We, we're essentially cover, covering all the potential breaches coming in from footwear to forklift traffic to uh, pallets, um, even to food product itself or even sanitizing the food product itself. So. Um, and, and in that case, we're, we're also working on predictive analytics that will allow us to monitor all of that and, and allow for an active solution should there be any breaches. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jim Rush. Uh, I've been with Mark for probably uh, close to four years. Uh, and this is my first foray into uh, the food and beverage industry. I was an academic for 20 years and Chief Learning Officer in two large financial service organizations for uh, 15 years. So, um, but uh, I'm enjoying this steep learning curve I'm on, and I have the responsibility for uh, uh, for marketing in the firm. Yeah, so you know, I think for the audience, um, you know, this is a topic that's pretty interesting. You know, I have a background. Part of the reason when I saw Mark, um, Mark and I first met, I'm not sure exactly how we first met, but I, but I, um, I have an engineering background, uh, much like uh, Mark and team, and and I know that the technology in food and beverage, um, while everybody knows it's there, it's like, I, you know, for me, it's like it's sort of got a near dear place because it act, you know, the the 
solutions uh, don't come automatically. And, and oh, by the way, you know, a lot of times people actually resist the solutions. They try to, um, you know, they've been doing it a certain way. As I said, you know, when they when I put the I put the first foot bath in at Oscar Mayer um, in a plant and. It was an engineered solution, by the way. Um, it literally had like a, a six-foot walk. We had to, you know, put a floor drain in, and then a, in a, in a, a, and when I say floor drain system, separate floor drain system that could handle the chemicals. That literally had a flush valve so that it would flush out every hour or so. And then we had, you know, uh, you know, where people could scrub their feet and just as they're walking across, and then they had to walk off someone so they wouldn't hurt, you know, fall and slip and. It was, you know, I don't know. I bet we spent, I, I, I'm guesstimating, but if you just sort of look at it today and try to create that about, you know, probably 50,000 plus um, to, to, to create such a thing at the time. And um, so when I saw and heard about um, CleanBeam as a piece of equipment that we could put into that space, all right. And, oh, by the way, one thing that I've, ours at, at Oscar Meyer was so long you couldn't avoid it, but most of the current ones that I always saw over the last the years after that, when I went to other companies, people would almost jump over <laughs> the foot washes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, they're not really working the way they were designed <laughs> if they do that. Um, yeah. So it really intrigued me that, you know, that, you know, here's a, something that's actually could work in a few seconds. And, and, and I think it's, you know, obviously it's sort of the 21st century type of solution, um, which thank God, because we're in the 21st century. Um, but so that's why it intrigued me and I really wanted to work with Mark and team. And, and I try to do that with uh, with our accelerator program. And now it's called the Fellows Program at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and we do have a technology cohort that's just built for this. So, you know, anybody that has a technology in food and beverage, we want them to come forward because it's, it's uh, obviously it's one of the reasons why Wisconsin is one of the lead, if not the leader, one of the leading, um, you know, uh, states for everything food and beverage. Um so with that, though, I want to I'm going to I'm going to pivot back to Mark and Clean Beam and such. Um, so so one of the things, too, that I know that we we focused on and, and, you know, when I when I grew up at Oscar Mayer, um, you know, we were pretty advanced in what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and, you know, we had clean rooms and, you know, we called them the green room um, at the time um, where, you know, that was the final packaging stage and everything had to be ultra, you know, everything is pasteurized when it got to it. So. When you went into that place, you had to be clean. That's why we had to put the foot bath in. And, uh, and the rest of the world has been catching up sort of like, you know, forever, forever since. And as I said, it, it was, it was sort of a, you know, you know, as an industry leader, we were, we did a lot of that stuff, but the reality was, is that, you know, I'm going to say USDA at that time, you know, was a big driver of it. And then the most recent, uh, you know, upgrade of USDA's regulations, FISMA compliance sort of kicked in. All right. And, uh, and in over, I think that was over, a, a, there was a three-year introduction cycle, I think it was, what, 2015, 16 through 18, where everybody had to come up to compliance um, compared to just the larger companies. And uh, and that was sort of an interesting shift in everything because, uh, um, you know, one, the big issue that I saw in, in, you know, in FISMA was the total compliance was not reacting to something, it was, you know, you had to be proactive. You had to know that you were running in control and that your suppliers were doing the, you know, what they were supposed to be doing. You had systems in place to make sure that that everything was clean and safe. And 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 so, you know, I guess what I wanted to do is turn it over to Mark and, and Jim to talk a little bit about, you know, what, you know, as they, they you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of giving you a little history lesson from my, my days at Oscar Meyer and such. Um, 
But, you know, these guys have actually lived it in the most recent implicate, you know, implications of FISMA and how, you know, what kind of technologies need to be in place in order for you really to be compliant with this predictive mode of thinking versus reactive mode of thinking. So I'm going to let I'm going to let Mark and, and Jim, you know, sort of give a little bit of thought on, on, on that whole trail of thought. OK, I think. Yeah, there. As we look at it, at least, and I, I think the uh, like law, you don't really know what what it means until uh, it's actually tested. But by by philosophy, the things that uh, resonate with us is FISMA is moving uh, both FDA and USDA away from, as um, Brad was talking about, away from being reactive to being very proactive and. For us, that means they're shifting their attention away, not away from recovery, but in addition to uh, helping and requiring firms to be better at recovery, should there be an outbreak or recall, uh, is really moving a lot of attention to uh, to prevention. So I, I think this movement from recovery to prevention is one key aspect. And the second one is, is and, and related to that in many respects, is... is uh, the ability to, to predict. Can we understand the conditions under which uh, either the movement of traffic, either people traffic or uh, vehicular traffic in and out and around and through plants, uh, can we understand those patterns well enough to understand, uh, to be able to predict or predict the probability or predict a scenario under which uh, an, an outbreak or a recall might be uh, more probable? And so um, uh, really, and I'm going back to repeat something Mark said a few minutes ago, uh, we think of ourselves as a biosecurity company. We think of all the ways in which uh, bacteria uh, get into food plants, get onto food, uh, ultimately, uh, and unfortunately into uh, some people. In uh, really looking at those and, and uh, thinking whether we can move towards a complete solution, which really means deactivating those pathogens wherever they are, uh, but also to know that uh, the, uh, the use of that equipment has been done appropriately and effectively in being able to uh, uh, trace uh, that traffic in and throughout uh, plants as well. Um, I think that will help uh, anybody meet the, the FISMA standards and we'll also give them, uh, and again, I'm re uh, reflecting on something Mark just said, we'll give them the opportunity to uh, 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 potentially understand that certain kinds of conditions uh, generate higher probability of, uh, of an outbreak. So um, at the very highest level, I think uh, what we're trying to do is, is directly in line with what FISMA is trying to, to do. We're trying to understand the direction FISMA is, is asking food uh, and beverage companies to move in uh, and, and be there to support them. Um, that, that's, that's not the only press on what it is we're doing. We're, we're really trying to understand uh, market needs and industry needs as well, but to, to the extent that those needs are in line with or being uh, pressed by, uh, by regulatory requirements, uh, I think we're uh, we're right in line with that. We're, we're excited that we've got uh, we've got a, a complete solution uh, that that actually can um, fit under this guideline of uh, prevention and predictability. Yeah, I think that's well said, Jim. And um, 
I think the big big thing we have to get over, um, and then people that have, you know, with all the regulations of FISMA, which is great, it's moving in the right direction. We still have to educate. We still have to help people understand that um, it's a lot more than checking boxes. It's <laughs> it's one of the things that we seem to find is oh well you just to use the footwear sanitizers as an example. Well, we're using boot washers and and so that checks their box and and that doesn't check the box. We have to educate people on you know that that footwear sanitizer in a short period of time actually becomes a contaminant. So mm-hmm. you're checking a box that's really not uh, not doing the job. So with our, our system, it's, first of all, it is a continuous system. Um, and this is something we're really trying to educate people on and that it always is effective. It's always continuing to communicate. It's always continuing to send the message in today it's just so easy to say i don't need that or i or i'm fine everything's fine today that's one of the most common things we'll hear (laughs) from people yet they just had a recall a year ago or you know and and the people that are in the know will will say that but as an entire corporation um you know some of these big food companies um it's just it's really an educational process jim and i have been working at that our whole company has been working at that for several years now and it's really starting to take some take hold and get some traction. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons we accelerated our, our whole answer, our entire solution, which we had planned on moving a little slower on, but we realized we needed to start that education process sooner so we can get, get through to everybody how critical it is to just get past checking the box. So on that note, real quick, because I know what your total solution is, why don't you talk a little bit about, about sort of the end-to-end that you've sort of evolved to, because you know, the, the product zones and what have you. And then, you know, and especially how you're sort of uniquely positioned with your pulse ultraviolet technology and, you know, and, and integration of, of, of the, of that technology into, you know, into, in this, you know, we're talking mostly right now about the boot sanitizers, but, you know, product zones and such. Right. Well, I'll start with um, just the basics, you know, uh, outs, you know, there's, there's basically four zones um, in, in a food plant. We, we've actually changed it to five. I'll explain that. Uh, so outside of your the walls of your processing plant is zone four, the floor. Uh, the minute you step into the plant, that's zone three, and it starts to get more critical. Um, zone two is the connection from zone three to the actual food surface. So let's just use a conveyor belt as an example. Um, that's zone one. And then we've used our self-proclaimed zone zero, which is the actual food product itself. So, so the most common ways bacteria can come in is uh, footwear. You know, it's probably number one because of the amount of traffic that comes in. And then one of the, one of the more complicated areas is say, coming in through the docks um, and through the warehouses, uh, where you're bringing in fork trucks, uh, hand jacks, pallets that have been on trucks that have been who knows where. Um, so we're we've started to address that because it's while it's the traffic isn't as high as what footwear, it's still a major point of traffic. So we are we have come up with systems that will sanitize the wheels, the bottom of the pallets. Um, again, people coming in from those those areas, and then once you're within the plant, there can be crossover problems from a raw, let's keep it simple, a raw area where the product may be raw. We'll use raw meat as an example. And then on the ready to eat side where the product is cooked, 
So you have crossover traffic. So there's also, that's also part of the perimeter that has to be protected. So if somebody's going, especially from rot or ready to eat, we have to have another cleaning area for that, for crossover pallets, crossover people, and also any of the equipment going back and forth. So, and then last but not least, you know, you hear about it every day, the product, you know, product being contaminated. So if there's a recall, a lot of times it's not um, happening in the plant that it happened. It came in that way. So that's, that's the last uh, line of defense, I guess is the best way to put it. And by sanitizing zone one, which would be the, 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 the product that the equipment that actually moves the product. And then the product itself are getting real time sanitizing in both of those cases, um, getting a lot of interest in that. So this is this is a continuous solution that is sanitizing 24 hours a day. So and, and just to help everybody else out, so you have pulse uh, if, if you know, obviously people understand light and pulsed light, that's just blinking light. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I think just to let you give yourself one more little infomercial, I mean, I mean, especially that last piece you talked about, it sounds like, oh, my God, that's really complicated. Well, actually, that's where you started from, you know, with your Cougar packaging technology. Um, so, why, you know, and just make sure that people understand a little bit of that, because obviously it's sort of like a full circle of what you just described. Yeah. So uh, Cougar packaging concepts um, actually started using pulsed ultraviolet light on the food product as part of a shelf life extension uh, process. So. Um, we, we've always been involved in map packaging, which is modified atmosphere packaging. Um, and then about oh, probably 10, 12 years ago, we started working with the idea that pulsed ultraviolet light um, could additionally add time to shelf life extension. It was pretty interesting when we did this because we'd find that one plus one would equal three or four or five, not two. Um, so for instance, if I had sanitized blueberries with, um, if I just matte packaged them, for instance, and they lasted an extra two weeks, or if I just used a pulsed ultraviolet light on them and it was an extra three days, the two together might give me 10 weeks or 12 weeks. And, and that's how we, how we got our experience with pulsed ultraviolet light. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just to give you an idea of why we're using the term pulsed ultraviolet light versus just steady ultraviolet light that's probably the biggest question that comes up uvc which is steady ultraviolet light um, typically uh, is at two, around 254 nanometers give or take a little bit and that's the perfect zone for killing pathogens um, at a dna level but it's also slow it doesn't happen very quickly at the very quickest it's going to take several minutes um, and usually it's going to take longer than that our product will sanitize that's get us down to a six log reduction, which is basically completely yeah. clean in a matter of three seconds or less. Um, and, and the other advantage of our light is that it's a broadband light. So where I just said 254 nanometers is UVC and it'll kill pathogens that won't take care of molds and, and other and yeast and things like that, uh, whereas our pulsed ultraviolet light is 200 to 1100 nanometers. So it covers a whole range of potential contaminants that can come into a plant. Um, and then the high end of that is actually um, infrared is getting to the edge of infrared, which also is a, another kill zone, uh, which is actually heat. So, and, and I always use that. I always follow that up with say it's heat, but it's heat does not, it does not change the temperature of the product because it's all happening so fast. 
-hmm. you'll get the kill value of the heat, but you won't create any ambient temperature change in the product. So, so that's why this works so well. Um, and it's, it's just, it's great for so many different things. And we have, we're using it for all the key things to keep our food chain safe. You're reminding me why I like my I like to work with technology companies. I've got an engineering undergrad, so I'm sort of like, you know, you, you allow me to, to go back to my beginning. <laughs> um, but uh, so I apologize to the audience in advance, um, you know, but but it's all good stuff. And I, and I said, because you start thinking about, you know, what are the you talk about heat? I mean, the old way is can it and you retort it and, you know, and, and it totally destroys the product. I mean, it destroys everything else in it, but it, it makes the product sort of mushy. Um, you know, and it, it's just not, not a good eating experience where with the technology you're describing that really preserves all of that. Um, um, it's just, it's, it is truly, you know, and it, you know, and the funny part is it's been around for quite a while, actually. I mean, the, the thought of that, I mean, I know I was talking to one of my other technology companies who's from India and he goes, oh yeah, we use that for water all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, that's interesting. I, you know, yeah, I, and it's funny. I, I didn't, I wasn't even exposed to it at, at Oscar Meyer in the sense that they were talking about maybe implementing it in, which I would have expected that honestly. Um, but um, but then again, that going live, that that in my mind sort of goes back to harkens to a little bit of my my you know thirty some year eight uh, thirty eight years now in food and beverage, um, you know we sort of do things the way we've been doing them. Um, we're we're slower to adapt um, for various reasons, and I can speculate on most of them. But but you're bringing in a new technology, and so you know I guess you know. I'm wondering if you guys want to share a little more about the, the, the arc of how you introduced this and sort of, and, and, and what sort of the, sort of the, the thoughts you've, I know I remember some of the thoughts we had in the very beginning about, you know, why we should consider, you know, adapting to this technology. And it's not just because of a FISMA requirement, it's because of, you know, um, yeah. you know food safety, food integrity and sort of the arc you've gone on that. So I, I think that's a, it's a good discussion point because, you know, it brings up a lot of topics. So, well, it is interesting the way it's evolved. Um, we were actually sitting in a meeting. It was a cougar meeting discussing, uh, you know, how to sanitize spices, which happened to be a, a product. I, I don't mean to scare anybody, but it's not the cleanest product in the world. So we were <laughs> trying to figure out a good way to do that. And uh, somebody in the meeting goes, well, wait, I have an idea. Why don't we use this for shoes? You know, <laughs> where, where, were you, where were you? Where was your head while we were talking about spices? But, um, but the, the truth is it, it caused a, a long pause and, and we're like, oh, this is just what a great idea. I mean, it's it just was the perfect application for this light. And, uh, and, and honestly, it was a simple motivation to start with. And that was simply to keep the feet dry, the shoes dry, so people don't slip and fall. Because there, there are so many issues of people going through boot washers, stepping off the boot washer, slipping and falling. Um, even, even other solutions like uh, people that wear um, slip-on covers over the shoes. There's horror stories of people climbing on equipment and falling because those are slippery. So we started this at the very simple but important level of protecting the employee from from falling, we had no idea how effective it was going to be. So, of course, the next steps is is to find out if it's effective and how long it takes takes it to work. And uh, you know, we found out that we could get 
you know, five plus log reduction in less than six seconds. Um, in many cases, less than four seconds. And the competitors were with the chemicals were getting probably, if they were lucky, two log. They would claim two log, um, but they they couldn't sustain that. The there was no consistency with that. As I said a little earlier, as they're going through any kind of a chemical bath, that breaks down in a short period of time. Uh, we've actually had customers tell us that. They've, the FDA has checked their boot washers and found listeria in the boot washers after less than an hour of usage. Mm-hmm. And then, and then from there, it's it's just you know it starts evolving into well, as Brad said earlier, people don't want to go through these boot washers; they want to go around the boot washers. So, how do we prevent people from going around these our unit? It's the same basic style; they've got to go through it. Well, being electronic, we can use um, RFID cards identification to identify the people going through it so um, it's traceable something that we haven't actually talked about but which is definitely a FISMA uh, important force FISMA was that if for instance there's supposed to be 50 people going into that processing room in, in the morning and only 48 have checked in through the machine then they know two people didn't use it so there's one of the simple um, bits of information that you can get from our equipment to make sure there's, there aren't any breaches. Um, and then, and it just keeps expanding from there. And we, we started talking about a cloud service where all this information could be kept. So if there happens to be a problem, they, you know, they can go back and look to see if they're, what's going on. Did they miss something? Um, we feel that even that, even the footwear sanitizer going to a process plant, will give information as to traffic patterns and potential breaches ahead of time so people can um, you know, react accordingly. Then as we expanded into the whole biosecurity perimeter, we started realizing that all of this equipment eventually will be able to talk to each other. It's not just, well, you've got a footwear sanitizer here and you've got a fork truck sanitizer back there. and you know, ultimately there's going to be a pattern established and in all honesty, I can't tell you what that is today. Um, mm-hmm. But having all of the equipment in, in a location on the same format, reporting to the same location, ultimately that will start to figure out, you know, what's, what's going on in that plant after six months or a year, we're going to have enough information that we will be able to say, there's something wrong today. There's something why you should go check today and see what is going on in your plant because too many people have moved from here to here. It's not normal. Uh, it's it, and, it, and ultimately we feel that's going to be more accurate than the one-on-one. Um, it, you know, it's going to give us a more of a predictive analysis by watching the entire traffic of a plant. Uh, and at the very least, it may not be correct, but it at least sends somebody out looking if there is a, if there's a potential problem with the whole system. So. And I'll be honest, again, a lot of this is way over my head. It's going to continue to involve. We have IT people that are going to be working on this and looking at how to do this. And they are doing that now. But uh, ultimately, it's going to be a really sophisticated system. And when Brad said recently that it was, you know, we're, we're in the 21st century and this is 2021. 2022. And where they started. You got, we're 22 years into the 2020. 22. I mean, 21st century. <laughs> sorry. But from where this started. I actually feel like we've jumped a century because you're talking about it being so archaic not that long ago yeah, to sell yeah. high tech in a very short period of time. In fact, our, our first few trade shows, we said, you know, we're jumping right to the 22nd century. 
because yeah. that's the that's the amount of progress we're making with this in a very short period of time. I think I'd add uh, two other points on that arc, as you called it, uh, Brad. Uh, and, and these are not necessarily in order and they're in different order for different people. But another one is this whole notion of sustainability. One of the advantages that uh, I, do, I don't think we sold uh, uh, very strongly in the beginning, but people began as sustainability became the uh, the word of the day or the word of the year, um, uh, more and more people picked up on the sustainability feature of this. So this is uh, no water, no chemicals, no disposables, low power uh, consumption. It uh, That really rang a bell with a lot of people. A, a number of uh, two majors that we're talking to right now are so con concerned about, even in the smallest ways, of, of uh, being sustainable, doing whatever they can uh, to meet the sustainability goals that their companies established. And then the last point, I, I'd, I'd like to I'd just reinforce something Mark said uh, prior to that. And I think the fifth point along the arc, if it's dry, effective, traceable, sustainable, then the fifth one is continuous. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and continuous has a couple of aspects to it. Uh, one of which, as Mark said, it works as well in our five on day 50 and year five as it did day one, hour one. Uh, but, it, but the other part of continuous, and this is something uh, that's become even more important as we've uh, talked to uh, customers, um, and in, in, in I'll, I'll use the example of a conveyor. We can do real-time uh, sanitation of conveyors. In other words, they don't have to stop production uh, in order to sanitize. We can sanitize while in operation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the productivity gains uh, for uh, firms are huge in that regard. In fact, one of the majors said, listen, we don't even need to to, to calculate an ROI on that. That's <clears> going to be so significant to us. If we can get one, two, three, maybe four more hours of, of uh, production in a day because we don't have to, uh, to stop and... Uh, and uh, sanitize a, a conveyor, for example. So um, this, and, and I like the way, Brad, you use the word evolution, because this really has evolved. We've had, and I think this is true for every small business startup, is that each conversation uh, with a customer, each successive conversation is more intimate than the one before. The more intimate the conversations you go, you understand the problem and the context within which that problem exists for somebody, uh, what the criteria around a good solution looks for them, and the nature of that conversation actually has has actually developed this arc as much as we set out to uh, uh, develop it in the first place. It's been it's a it's 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 a journey for everybody in this regard, and we're we're grateful to the uh, clients that we have now that they're willing to engage us in these discussions and go on that journey with us. Well, and that's, that builds, I'll, I'll sort of put a selling point to some of the things I've, I've been working with tech companies on, especially, you know, even more so, but, you know, the whole idea of consultative selling um, is so much better. I mean, cause you walk in and you're talking, if, if done right, I mean, I, I say done right. And I say, I'll, I'll, I'm going to use more of a uh, academic type of thing. I, I've been, I've been part of a, I've been a mentor for an NSF national science foundation uh, program. Um, a few years back, and 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 their first EPT sort of model, their 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 training, you know, their business planning model that they have the 
the companies work on is they require them to do 100 interviews. You know, you cannot pass to the next stage unless you've done 100 uh, customer interviews. And it's not going in to say, hey, would you like to buy a, you know, would you like to buy a, a pulse ultraviolet light system for your shoe, you know, for your boots? It's talking about the area, you know, the topic of food safety and and product contamination zones and blah, 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 and what, you know, what keeps them up at night. And, and, and so that they they actually help you create that masterpiece you're looking for. Um and 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 it's funny that I, I it, what you what you just described and what I've witnessed a lot of companies go through is that if you do more of that up front, you get there faster. If you don't, and and but you learn to be consultative along the way, um, you'll get there. You know because you'll you know, and it's it, it in a way it's sort of like it'd be nice if everybody went through the like like say an NSF process. You know, it, it's sort of uh, like say it's a little academic in nature, but. Actually, is pretty good. It's a great. Ex- it was a great experience for me, honestly, um, because you know, especially developing technology, it's such a longer throw than a consumer product. Um, you know, you got to get organizations to change the way they do business. All right, um, that's more than deciding whether I want to have, you know, a, a, a Miller or a Bud. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, they're both beers and they're both pretty much the same. I'll, you know, if they don't have one, I'll take the other one. You're already, you're already in the consideration set. You know, you're, you know, you guys are asking people to, to trust that you're going to work and you're not going to cause them problems and they're going to know how to adapt to it. And, and, you know, and, and meanwhile, their, you know, their whole business is, is, uh, you know, about turning out millions and millions and millions of units quickly and uniformly. And so how do you, how does like a clean beam play a role in that? And I, you know, you guys have done a great job of, of really pulling that focus in and, and actually then, and then pulling that focus in and then broadening it to, to your point of, sort of the complete consult, you know, the, you know, that we can look at your entire envelope of, of business and how can we help you? Um, and, you know, cause frankly, like I say some of the, what you just described, Jim on 24 hours a day, being able to not, I mean, think about the sanitation cycle. And I, I used to watch people shut down lines with a high pressure hose that they bored out the tip so they could actually shut the line off from across the room with that high pressure hose. <laughs> It's sort of scary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that goes on in some plants, you know, and uh, it's sort of sort of stupid. But, you know, usually it gets caught and stopped eventually because it does some real damage, um, you know, by a solution that you're talking about. It's like literally, the, you know, obviously you don't you know have as many high pressure systems and and, you know, chemicals and things like that that are really hard on everything you know, both sustainability, machine re- integrity, people, you know, um, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's an amazing evolution over my, my, my 38 years, honestly. And as I said, I, and working with Oscar Meyer and Sargentos, these guys are great. They, they're really top flight. I've been in other plants, um, all throughout my career, not only with them, but when I was with them, I went to other plants when I, as I've done both consulting and then now working with, uh, uh, especially the entrepreneurial world. And I see uh, a range of things. It's like, wow, you know, we have a ways to go, but, um, but the, the neat thing is the technology is out there. Um, one thing I want to, I want to go, I'm going to sort of shift, you know, and uh, you, you brought up something, Mark, that I think is sort of interesting. Um, 
you know, the whole world of, you know, I always I come back to technology and I said, so a lot of other areas of the world are further ahead of food and beverage. And, and I'll use the insurance world as an example. You know, the old way of getting an insurance quote used to be that you'd sit down with your agent and, and they would take all your information in and then they would go back to headquarters and they'd give it to their actuary team and they would take them a month, two or three weeks to crunch out, you know, what your profile would look like in their business, you know, in their, in their actuary tables. And then they would give you a quote for a product. Nowadays, they can do it in literally seconds, you know, and the way they do that is it's it's literally an end by end integrated database of everything in the world for all that matter. And and they've they've built their algorithms around that. All right. So they can give you a price and they know they're going to be safe and they're going to make money as an insurance company and and give you what you want as coverage. Um what you describe, Mark, is sort of that same thing. I mean, you've got business systems, integrated systems, um, you know, around, that are evolving around manufacturing plants. And, and once again, it's not just big ones. I mean, anybody that's, you know, running their plant for the most part now is using computers almost in every single element of it, right? And they can be networked. And then how do they get inter- interact? I got one company I'm working with uh, called Thingaroo that he's developing an app so that you can, anybody can integrate QR codes into their process, right? Um, which is easier said than done unless you have some kind of, you know, app that would help you do it within your process. Um, so I, I guess, you know, on that thought, you know, do you, where do you see that? How, you know, maybe, you know, talk a little more about that. If you've got anything you can share in that area, Mark, I, I got to believe you guys have thought about this. We have, we've thought about it. We've talked about it. Um, I wish I could tell you I was the expert to talk about it, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. Um, but we do see that as, um, as the future, as, as we continue to expand the ability for these units to communicate and, and, um, and create um, data that's really useful. Uh, we, have to, we have talked about that. I have to say Chris Werfel, who happens to be uh, the other founder of CleanBeam is, is certainly our IT expert and would be able to talk to that more. So. Rather than try to, I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. no, that's I'm, I'm, I'm foolhardy enough to give it a little try, though. We, there you okay. go. <laughs> um, there, so there's two there's two levels that we're coming at. One that one of is uh, is is just to meet control and compliance needs. So, as Mark said before, we'll we'll be able to tell who's been in and who's not been in, uh, and who's been through the machine and who's not been through the machine, and have everybody been through the machine in the morning after first break, after lunch, after second break. And we'll, we'll be able just strictly for compliance reasons. And should there be an outbreak and an investigation, we'll be able to report on the fact that either everybody did or some people didn't actually uh, uh, utilize the machine at, a, at an expected time and, and in an expected uh, frequency. So that, that just meets simple control and compliance needs. Um, and then, then the second one, and, and this is where all of us are really in early days, but in conversation with, with our clients is, is this, this alone might tell you something about patterns. So, and, and I'll use an example Mark just referred to a minute ago. If we see sort of a, a change in patterns, the movements around a plant, through a plant are, 
not not necessarily that there's something wrong. It's just different than the way it normally is. And in fact, that difference historically has been uh, associated with an outbreak or a recall or a swabbing that uh, has generated uh, higher than normal counts. Uh, we'll be able to say, listen, that pattern is existing right now at this moment. And as Mark said, you might want to you might want to deal with that. We're not saying there is. Uh, an increase in bacterial count, but the pattern is similar to other patterns that have existed here or and uh, at, at which swabbing has shown that there's there's higher counts. Mm -hmm. When we put this together with uh, across uh, a lot of clients and the data the, the amount of data goes up, uh, we think we'll be able to do that and and uh, and uh, be really be able to get to uh, uh, to a predictive point. Um, what's unknown to us at the moment is how we combine that with other operating data. I mean, I, I, I've been reading a number of things lately about how the Internet of Things is taking over food and beverage. Um, maybe a little late to the game, but uh, clearly, <laughs> yes. clearly uh, getting started right now. And, you, and, and it's interesting when you get in with early days, you can say, what kind of data? You can start building theories about uh, this data with other data, what might that data tell us? What would we look for uh, mm -hmm. that would give us some indication that we uh, that we ought to pay attention? Or as we talked about, there's anomalies in your data that this didn't happen before. I wonder what's going on. This ability to sort of generate the, I wonder what's going on question or what if kinds of questions and, and uh, to cause you to be a little bit more vigilant about uh, what's going on in your operation. So, I think stage one and stage two we're pretty uh, comfortable with. Stage three is is something we're just uh, beginning to explore, and, and that's again I'd go back and say that that we will not we will start by ourselves, mm -hmm. but it, it's not the kind of thing we'll develop without uh, without doing it with uh, a client or with a group of clients. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, you know I I I, I say I'll, I'll harp on it for a while, but because I. Like I, said, I grew up at Oscar Mayer. We had some amazing technology. We built it all of our, our own. In fact, back in the day, they, you know, I was there when we first put in, I was part of a team that basically put in integrated systems from outside Oscar Mayer. Um, and, and they very rarely had, up until that point in time, very rarely had even PLCs in the plants. All right. They were they, literally everything was push button stations. And, and then in order to get up, you know, a, to pick up a stack of meat for, to put it into an automatic, you know, automatic placing into a package, um, you had cam followers and cam, you had a line shaft running down the line and, and it was like, it was Rube Goldberg on steroids, you know, and, and this was as recent as the eighties and nineties. All right. So I'm not talking about, you know, 1930s and forties, although that's what made them great is because they developed that in the thirties and forties and it took them all the way through the nineties. Um, but the reality is, is, is that technology shift that you described about, you know, predictive things and, you know, sort of the, the whole, the internet of things and, or the, the whole idea of, of, of cross-linking databases, you know, right. um, right. and, and utilizing that, you know, the effective sort of analysis of that, you know, you know to be able to, to predict, I mean, I, the, the whole e-commerce world, uh, 2003, um, I went to a, a, a Brandworks University seminar and they were talking about banner ads and e-commerce and it was sort of like interesting, but it was glorified marketing, you know, you know, online, traditional marketing. 
I came back in 2013 and AMX was talking about it and they go, well, we know what you bought, wh where, you know, you know, we know what, where you bought it, what you bought, who you might've given it to, you know, shipped it to. Um, we also cross tab that to your Pinterest interest and your Facebook and they, and they went on and on and on. It's like, so they're literally creating like the minority report. You know, there's a scene in minority report where the guy has faked the system out and it's like, his name is not Yamaguchi. And then but he walks into a, a target and, or, you know, it's a gap store, Mr. Yamaguchi, that's not your size, you know, that they literally can market to the individual. Yeah. All right. And, and, and AMX is, you know, and, and the world, the, 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 the e-commerce world is getting extraordinarily close. If not, they probably are doing that in, a, in some, in, in some version of it. Um, you know, and that, the reality is that same kind of, uh, of technology, you know, the, while food and beverage may be later to the game, one thing we don't do is create it. Right. All right. Um, I think the bigger issue you run into there is that, it's a, it's a conservative, you know, when you're making, like I said earlier, you're making millions and millions and millions of unit. You want to make sure you do it right. You want to be safe. You don't want to, those machines are running very fast. They can, they can cut things off very easily just because of the, the speed and the, and the size of the machines. Um, so there, I know there's always been every company I've been in, in the equipment side of the world that I've done. There's a concern about machine control you know, that don't let the internet get their hands on it. Um, that kind of thing. So you, you separating machine control from the rest of the world. Um, but that barrier is being, you know, is being, I know is being changed every year. All right. Um, and, 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 and by doing that now, all of a sudden you have all this data that resides in the machine at the machine level um, that can be integrated into this broader network that you're talking about. So that you can not only take some of your predictive things about, you know, you know, when you start looking at the holistic view of, of making, I always talk about the goal of an operation is to make number, how much number one product at the lowest possible cost, right. you know, within, and then the last one, within food safety guidelines, right? Because, um, right. you know, and, and interlacing all that information is going to be, it's going to be fun in a way for me, I, I, understanding it, understanding the larger picture of that. It's really needed because, frankly, you know, as we've, we, I know we've talked about it independently, you know, when I first got out of school and went to Oscar Mayer and, and, and saw how things were made, and then I started thinking about it, and they, and they were really work. they're on the front edge of sanitary design. Um, I quickly learned the idea that a 24-hour flu is sort of bogus. It's not a flu. <laughs> um, it's something that's passing through you. Um, and, and it's like, you know, it, and it's just going it, to, it, it left um, unattended, you know, it doesn't get better. We, 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 and we can, we can, our food security and food safety can, is definitely something that's manageable. Right. You know, it's, it's interesting too, that, um, you know, one, one of the things, as I said earlier, when you say about checking the box and, and we're talking about being um, predictive rather than reactive, one of the areas that companies are still very reactive is, is recalls. And mm -hmm. companies are now starting to try to apply a cost of the risk. And, and when we can get companies to look more at that as being part of the predictive analysis also, I think that's going to be a big step forward for, you know, for food sanitation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And well, and then in, in, in a couple other trends that are your friend, um, but I think just as even a, it's all of our friends in, in food and beverage is that, 
you know, the quality of the water, the quality of the land, um, you know, the, the fact that our, our eight, you know, approaching 8 billion people on the planet and, and there's a couple of billion coming into a middle class, um, you know, it's that the demands on our, on our system are going to continue to go up. Um, the reliability of our system is going to be that much more important, um, you know, and, and, you know, and at the same time, making it safe too, because, uh, one thing I, I don't know if you guys have seen much in this space yet, but, um, I've heard a, there's a there's a, a pretty big trend on sort of food sort of food fraud. Um, you know, people are selling products that aren't aren't exactly what they say they are, um, and they're doing a very good job of hiding it. You know, um, and so that you know, it's this idea of food. You know, if you, if you look at it, there are certain sectors that have been over the years. It's not been as it's not like as life or death, but it could get to that point left unattended. Um, you know, like the, the olive oil industry is, is notorious for, uh, you know, is it, you know, extra virgin olive oil and, and just the, the adulteration that it can occur and still be called extra virgin, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and then you know, along with, you know, whenever adulteration occurs, you know, food safety is an issue. Right. All right. And then you start, you know, introducing all the other elements that you guys are trying to work on to prevent, um, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of an interesting, complicated web, but uh, like I, say, I always thank God for good engineers. Um, just like I, I thank God for good IT people too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I'm gonna I want to sort of shift gears here a little bit. Um, you know, you guys have developed your technology. You know, for the for the for the uh, the, the boot sanitizers, and um, you know, have had this arc of implementation i want this would be more for the tech companies that might be listening in here you know i guess why don't you guys talk a little bit about i'm going to say the you know i know mark you and i in the beginning talked about well there's an roi to this thing i know there is you know i you know i i i put systems like this in this before and this would be cheaper if i did it this way um and then and, and you at the beginning you didn't you you're like well it's obvious but that's not what we're going to focus on this other stuff so, and then, you know, and you sort of, you've done a little bit of both over the thing, but of, of the, of, of sort of addressing ROI and then also addressing the larger issue of food safety and security and, and how your system adapts to it. I guess what I'd like to do is, you know, like if you had to do it all over again, um, as you're developing, you know, knowing that there's a, and you knew going in, there was a decent arc to getting people to accept your systems. All right. Correct. You know, what would you recommend to people to do? Well, you know, as, as you said, Brad, when I came in with the rose-colored colored glasses and uh, we thought people would just say, oh, well, gosh, this is reducing our chance of a recall so dramatically that what, what's the difference, what it costs. And um, we, we really figured out that that's not true, right? I mean, I wish it was, um, but it's not. Yeah. And I, we, we worked this hard for a long time. I mean, what is the ROI? Uh, how do we calculate the ROI? And this is what I what I just mentioned earlier. When you talk about the cost of risk, how does that factor in? And, and that's probably the most um, difficult one at this point, the one we're still working on. But I, I think we moved, um, you know, where, where it depends on a lot of cases, the size of the plant, the ROIs we found could be anywhere from one year to four or five years. Um, you know, one to two years, you start, you get attention, you start getting past that. Uh, it gets a little more difficult. Um, total cost of ownership, and this is where Jim really spent a lot of time, and I'll let him talk about it more in a minute, but 
total cost of ownership is what I wish we would have really focused on sooner. Um, you know, there's so many things besides just the cost of the unit, the cost of the chemicals. There, there's so many other factors, disposing of the chemicals, the, the uh, people it takes to upkeep the units. Um, you know, it, it's the total cost of ownership. And, and again, I'll let Jim explain where he's, what he's seeing has, has made a difference, a huge difference. It gets people's attention. Um, you know, I just, I, I just don't, the, the big, big problem of course is upfront costs versus longer term costs. Um, and we've, we've gone through the whole, you know, capital expense versus, um, maintenance expense in what's the best way to approach that. We, we've even looked at, um, you know, cost per use way of doing it. Um, and, and I'm not going to lie, that's still a little bit of the struggle here, but. Um, I think I'll let Jim talk a little bit about more about TCO, but I think that's really where we're focusing now and getting a lot more positive uh, feedback on that. Just a, a couple of things. I, w one of which is that um, even taking very conservative data, uh, the, our, our conversations have moved a long way when we've moved it off ROI. And, and the difficulty with ROI is that uh, um, people have a, have a, either they're unwilling uh, or have difficulty actually sort of layering in all the expense they've got associated with sanitation. Either, you know, if it's labor, it's on uh, three or four different line items on a budget. If it's uh, materials, it's it could be on one line item, but it it's an expense, not a capital purchase. So people aren't even, you know, it's just going off, uh, 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 you know, it's an expense on one budget year. People aren't looking something for a return either to in year two or year three, if they've got an expense mentality to it. But um, in, in our view, I think if we had started in the beginning, really talking about total cost of, of ownership, because what we've been able to demonstrate pretty convincingly uh, that um, it's the maintenance cost, the materials cost and the labor over time, that's really it really increases uh, the overall cost of uh, of what the incumbent solutions are. If they're boot washers or uh, boot scrubbers or uh, captive boot programs, whatever people are using right now, um, it it uh, the, the ongoing maintenance of those programs, which is sort of never really pulled out as a single item and looked at, is is uh, uh, is pretty significant. And, and most of what we're seeing is that uh, actually early in year two, uh, that, that's the point at which the total cost of ownership is equal. And then our, as our, our cost of ownership really stays flat, theirs continues to go up with added labor and, and, uh, and material costs. So I would, I would re-emphasize the point Mark just made is that the conversation auto have moved from ROI to uh, TCO. We did do ROI studies and we showed a paid back depending on what current expenses are any, from anywhere from in one plant. Uh, it was as low as eight months and, and uh, this is really payback, I guess, not ROI. Um, as low as eight months and, and uh, in another plant as high as almost four years, mm -hmm. which was still under most people's um, uh, hurdle, but but mm -hmm. uh, quite a range in uh, in doing that. I think the third thing I would ask, which add to this, which is 
been really difficult to get into conversation with is this is this is a cost avoidance play as mm-hmm. much as it is a cost savings play. And to what Mark was talking about a minute ago in terms of, you know, what, what happens if you get a recall and, and your market cap drops, you know, for six months? What what does that mean to you when when uh, when you have to take product off the shelf for six months? What does that do to brand and what is your brand worth and what is that what does that cost? What does that cost your brand uh, when people? Uh, you know, and, and, and if you've got a product that there's an easy, uh, you know, just like you said a minute ago with, uh, you know, with Bud and, and Miller, if you can switch to another one that for all intents and purposes is the same, I may never come back. And, and all those avoid cost avoidance things are very, they're hard to calculate. People know they're there, but it's hard to put a number on it. So, mm-hmm. um, I would reiterate what Mark said. I think the, our, our more meaningful conversations now have been um, uh, around total cost of ownership. And, and by the way, that, that actually has gotten us into one of the com- bits of conversation we might want to have. I'm not, not presupposing where you want to go with this, Brad, but, and, uh, and it really talks to sort of the, you know, the, the adoption curve. So I, I think we, if we had paid a little bit more attention to, uh, who's ad- who, who's likely to adopt new technology quicker? Who are the early adopters out there? And where in any one company, even if they're not an early adopter, are early adopters sitting? They're the people who are who are more or less concerned about new technology. The you know the upset that an, a new technology might bring. So our conversations with people in firms who are charged with early adoption or out there scouring the earth for new technologies, uh, companies who are prone to early adoption of new technologies, and a conversation around TCO uh, has really, uh, we've moved in a a significant way in the last little while, sort of concentrating on, um, uh, on those variables. Yeah, so and, and we can take this wherever you want, Jim and Mark. But I, I guess one of the things I, as I go through these these uh, these podcasts, and then especially on the technology side, because it's sort of an area that, like I say, doesn't get a lot of sunlight. Honestly, um, it's different. As I said, there's you know one of the things that I, I I I have been pushing more and more people, and I and I you know just even the work I've done with you guys in the last year or so, um, you know, I really push as much as we can consultative selling. You know. Don't go in trying to sell hard. You know, the reality is, is they'll, if you sell too hard, unless you have the perfect widget, you know, which they've already been, well, you complete me. They very rarely say yes right away anyway. So you're almost better to find out where their pain is and how you can, how you have solutions for various things and, and enter and listen to what they have left to say. So you, to your point, you come back with a a tighter Q and a section in your, in your sales book, (laughs) you know, the customer said this, this is our answer, right? Let's have an answer for that. Um, so, you know, you, you really, uh, you know, that, that, that I've been seeing that a lot. And, and the thing that I, the other thing that you just brought up, Jim, is like, and I remember talking to you guys about a year ago about this. It's like, okay, so you were, you were working on customer segmentation. Um, we do that. And, you know, when I do that with a consumer products brand, I mean, to me, it's intuitively obvious. You have to, you can't market to the world. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, you guys don't have enough money. You have to get, you know, in fact, the bigger companies go after the bullseye 20% and then the next ring out of the 20%, maybe they're, they're only 50% in, in your camp, but you know, you'll, the message resonates 50% of the time. So keep the message to that 20%, right? 
um, that the lead 20%, um, and be focused. And, and I tell you that, uh, it, it, I'm glad to hear you say, it, and I know you guys have been going through it. So I, I, I sort of, you know, you know, give you want to, you know, the attaboy, I'm glad you're doing it. And, and I, I highly recommend it. And it sounds like you guys are finding good traction in that, in, in that, you know, you know, and by, by doing just that segmentation work and then having a message for those brands, those, those segments, um, because I, you know, I'll, I'll use another technology company that I've been working with, QGistics. Um, you know, I started working with him on this same topic a year or so ago, and I said, "You get on." You know, he he does a lot of work across the, the spectrum. You know, very small companies to very, to, I'm gonna say, very large companies. And I said, the message is different for each one of those guys. All right, and and oh, by the way, the amount of energy you want to put into each one is a little bit different too, because frankly, you don't have time to do all of them, so you have to figure out how much how to be as efficient as possible with these small companies and understand the message, be very tight with it. And the bigger companies, it's a different message because frankly, they're asking different questions. Um, And so, you know, by, by using, you know, that discipline of customer segmentation, um, you know, it's like, say it's, it's, you know, especially being an engineer is my first life. um, You know, I didn't, well, I, I appreciated it because I was taught to, find out what the plant, you know, what the, what was bothering the plant and to fix it. That's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Um, I would say there's two aspects to segmentation. There's the among companies segmentation. So which companies fit uh, uh, the profile you're, you're going after, but the, the, then even within a company, I, I, one of the really, one of the things that's really struck me, um, early on when we went to trade shows, we got, we got a tremendous amount of excitement. People, and, and maybe because we had a big machine and a big booth and people came by, but also the, and, and they literally, and I'm not trying to be too uh, boastful here, but they, they were very interested. But one of the things we discovered is that they were either not able or not in a position to go back inside their firm and sell this technology, get other people mm-hmm. as excited as they were by it. Uh, so we had people mm-hmm. that we were talking to, but as, as a group of people and, you know, pardon the generalization, but uh, they weren't able or, or in a position to go sell it inside their firm. But as we started to segment, and, and I'm only using this term now, I didn't use it before, but it, as I think about it, it was really segmenting the population inside of any firm. There are people who are more mm-hmm. interested in te- new technologies, more likely to adopt new technologies, and more able to sell the advantages of new technology, describe what it really is, than other people are. So we've tra- we are consciously moving to the people inside organizations who fit that profile, who are better able to talk us up in their firm than the people who maybe mm-hmm. who even are experiencing the problem, but are not adept at having a conversation about a new technology or a conversation about the ROI or the difficulties or ease of substituting one solution for another. So I, I wouldn't, you know, if anybody's, I, so to, segmenting on two yeah. levels, I think is is what my long-winded way of getting there is. Yes. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Mark, you have anything you want to add? Yeah, to that? I, I was just going to say that you know there there isn't one person making that decision in any company, and <laughs> and it, it probably is starts at eight or ten people and goes up from there. 
Um, and, and the key is to find a person that's willing to, to preach to and talk to all those people and bring them all together. And it takes a big effort. I mean, yeah. and, and that person's going to run into some obstacles. They're going to get that person say, yeah, but I don't, and you know, and they're going to have to go through that. So it, you have to find that person that is going to be your advocate inside, in, inside the company. Um, and then another aspect of segmentation that I, I think maybe you're getting to a little bit, Brad, was within, um, say, certain industries, like say hot dogs, since you were talking about Oscar Mayer or, or peanut butter or, you know, some of the industries that have their own unique problems and uh, they tend to want to work together as, as a group because any kind of a recall within that industry will have an effect on everybody. So if there's a recall on mm -hmm. a bad product, everybody in that industry suffers and uh, which, which is a, which is pretty unique coming from other aspects. If you've been in other aspects of business, a lot of people like things to be a secret, uh, but, the food industry yeah. really likes to share and uh, getting the good message out there, getting the right people talking to each other. We have um, people in certain industries that say, let's get this done. And then we're going to take you to our annual meeting of all these companies that are alike that we're going to introduce and, and, and back you um, and tell, tell them this is the fi finally, we've got a solution for this problem that we have within this segment. So uh, we're, we're, we're slowly and surely um, starting to, uh, cap, you know, get those done, which is really uh, satisfying for sure. Yeah. 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 That's to say it's been, it's, it's, uh, it's watching technology companies. I said my, 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 my world grew up more on buying technology. And then I got into, I made the leap of faith into marketing and, and got in, you know, started applying the physics of uh, business and supply and demand, three C's, four P's, and, you know, and, and really working the system to sell to consumers and such, um, which like I said, you know, has its own issues with, with the customers between the consumer, you and the consumer, um, you know, the, the retailers and such. But, um, you know, then coming back to technology, you know, working with guys like you and QGistics and, you know, T4, and, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, okay, how do we make this work? And the reality is there's a lot of similarities, but to, your, to what we just discussed on segmentation, there's not, you, there's a lot of set customer segmentation in, in, in retail, in retail foods and such. Um, but there's not as many ways that people can say no. Right. I, you know, and I, I've, been, I've been the I've been the champion inside of different companies for new ideas and new technologies. Um, and, and a lot of people talk, you know, when I give my examples of different things I've done in my career and it's oh, you. Well, it's a big food. You've done. It's like, do you realize I have to get up to about a thousand people to say yes? You know, it's like um, it's that's yeah, easier said than done. Trust me. And then and still to not have everybody hate you. Yeah. <laughs> But, another uh, another anyway, thing, just to add a little bit of uh, color to it, is you know the cost of when you talk about the cost and total cost of ownership, and I keep preaching, you know, um, the the risk the risk cost, the risk management cost, and you know, an average recall for most of these larger companies is from ten to ten to thirty million dollars, um, and and most of that doesn't mm -hmm. count reputational damage. That's just direct cost, yeah. and I. I don't think people realize, you know, they hear the recall and they think, oh, so what? It's, you know, craft foods and they can afford to lose, but they can't. They can't afford that. I mean, yes, they're big companies, they're multi billion dollar companies, but 
to suffer those kind of law kinds of losses and you could probably multiply that by some you know reasonably large number of what the reputational damage costs um that's that's something else that we just keep keep working hard at to to include in the tco yeah yeah and to your point i know it's hard to put a hard number to it because you're you know and it, it, it can make you look you know you, it might make you like oh well they're just yeah, trying to scare us exactly. into a second thing but the reality is this is that you know you still got to be your consultant you know i guess you know I've, and i like I, said, I was with you in a couple of, of, of meetings that we you know in the last year or so and um you know the coming in is the consultative side of things, just reminding people, you know, that's a box that they should, <laughs> they should consider. And they, and they are, you know, but you know, I, you can do it and you should do it. I mean, as, as, as I, it, you should do it. I mean, not, not necessarily beat a drum real hard, but eventually when they get into push comes to shove and they're talking and they have to, you know, get the, you know, maybe the, you know, an executive vice president, CEO, CFO to finally say, yeah, we're going to put that in the capital plan. All right. Um, part of it is like, okay, it does, and it, it addresses a big issue that we've been talking about, you know, um, you know, and so, you know, that's why to some extent, you know, you got to look at all the knobs, you got to be, you know, as, 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 as I talk to the companies I'm working with on, on their brands and stuff like that, it's, it's a little bit of a different beast, but in, in, and when you're dealing with business to business like that, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're showing the sort of the full slate of things let them figure out the pressure points a little bit and, and, you know, and then, and, and getting good at that consultative process is you know, it's, it takes a while, but honestly that creates your competitive advantage in, in the market space. Well, I, the, the consultation to our business is the absolute key. I mean, we can come in with all the knowledge in the world and, and educate, as I said, but we also have to get educated. I mean, it's a, uh, every mm-hmm. plant is different. Nobody knows the plant like the people we're talking to. Um, find out mm-hmm. their weak points, what they're concerned about. Getting them to get comfortable with you to tell you that is, is another challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they have to reveal some pretty sensitive information, which of course we wouldn't share with anybody, but getting them comfortable that we're there truly to help them and to, and to make them a better organization is part of the job. And honestly, for me, it's, it's the fun part of the job. I really enjoy that working back and forth and learning and we'll continue to learn and continue to get better with every customer that we get. Yeah. Yeah. And I do recommend, you know, for everybody and you guys are doing this, I know that, but I'm just like, what I, when I used to launch a business, you know, whether it's Sargento and Palermo's, wherever I've been, you know, what we did is we, when I, we, we would create an, you know, an, a pitch presentation and it was sometimes pretty lengthy, sometimes not all that lengthy, but it was, it was sort of orchestrated. They really, what we, thought was setting up the value proposition and, and how it was really the right for them, right for them to say yes to us. Right. right. And, and then what we did is we actually had, you know, the first presentation, sometimes you build those, they get to be all encompassing and they're so big and broad and, you know, you, you can't show that because most people don't want to listen to an hour presentation. Um, so we try to get it down to like 20 minutes, 30 minutes at the max, you know, with, with obvious doors for people to ask questions. And then, and then what we created was a template of uh, basically customer feedback questions. So these are the questions that we would get back when we go through the presentation. If there was a new question that was not asked before, um, that that was that was added to the book. All right, so that anybody that taught you, you know, within your organization and your sales organization, I mean, really anybody that's t- in face to face with customers, and and that can get down to the technicians on the floor for that matter. They should know about these things because you don't want somebody saying right when you said left. 
All right. Um, or, you know, somebody coming in and inserting their point of view versus, you know, no, this is this is what we've been hearing from the industry elsewhere. And and it's come up three times. We need to make sure we address it. And this is how we address it. Um, those that kind of that kind of micromanage of a communication plan is really critical, um, honestly, because first off, you only get so many words that convey to these people that you're talking to. Um, and so using your time and your words wisely, it's just, it's marketing one-on-one. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you're, if you're I, to the audience, if, and, and whether you're a tech company or a brand for that matter, um, and you're working with trying to sell through a customer to get to the, your consumer, um, you know, that exercise is, is really, I mean, a lot of people do it in, informally. That's okay. That's better than zero. <laughs> um, but I really recommend you almost formalize it. Um, because you'd be surprised what people hear, you know, um, you, you, if, if three people are in the room, somebody, they might've heard the same comment, but you know, those three perspectives can be molded into the one sort of what, what was, what was really being asked there, you know, and what, and what do we want to say as back as a company, um, that actually getting that discipline is, is really quite important, honestly. Yeah. Um, and like I say, and I've seen it both on, on consumer product side of, you know, business to business selling, but I think in what you guys have been describing and what I've witnessed firsthand, um, yes, you need that because you got a lot of, in your cases in, in technology and business to business sort of plays, um, you got a lot of people to get to say yes to, you know, you know and I'd, I'd also and, say that it's an ever evolving process too. So. Anybody that's doing it and if it doesn't feel right that first time, don't get discouraged because, you know, we get, we've yeah. been working at this for a while and we're getting better and better and better. And um, there's no doubt to me a successful presentation is 15 minutes and then the, the rest of the time is answering questions and creating conversations. And sometimes, you know, you yeah. don't get that. Sometimes you, you come out of that and go, what could I have done different? Well, and then we sit down as a group and figure that out. Jim's great at this. And what's missing, what, what did we do wrong? And next time we improve it and then we see an improvement in that. And just, it's an ongoing process um, and it can change, you know, as times change, it can change. So it's, it's, it's something really, you're right, has to be paid attention to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of sort of turn around to getting close to wrap things up here for us. But um, you know, you guys are experts in the area, I'm going to say of, of, a food safety prevention, you know, you, I, I don't know exactly. And you, and you can tell me, you can paraphrase how you want to have the audience hear it. But, um, you know, so you know, I was talking to T4 Solutions. So his consultative centerpiece is profitable e-commerce, you know, how, you know, retailers can actually make money at e-commerce, um, which many of them think that they are. And, and, they, and he knows for a fact, because he's worked with them enough that a lot of it's been homogenized into their base business and they're not making anywhere near as much. In fact, it's probably costing them money um, in their business. And so I asked, you know, Steve, I said, you know, you know, so give me, play it forward. What do you see in, in the trends and in food, you know, in his case, it was e-commerce, but I guess in your case, you know, food safety, um, the whole arc of, you know, of preventive predictive, we talked a little bit about it, but you know, what's the crystal ball for the future? So I go back and forth between, uh, you know, where's the real press for this going to come? Is it going to come from the regulatory side or is it going to come uh, from uh, the producer side, the processor side? Um, and, and I'm not sure yet. 
Um, and every time I'm in a situation where there are two forces uh, impinging upon an entity somehow, I think it's 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 in it's in between or it's in combination. Um, so I, I'm kind of thinking at and, and sort of looking for and seeing if there are early indicators of real meaningful conversation between uh, regulators and processors here, where they're they're on the you know one one's not sort of checking the work of the other, but they're both they're both they're working together. Uh, to come up with uh, what ultimately is a safer uh, product for uh, for people to consume, um, and and I actually um, I, I think the ultimate solutions are going to come that way. I think more practical solutions are going to come that way. Uh, I, I think that uh, um, I. I, I I, in general, this is a bias I have. I, I don't see policing uh, ever working really well unless it's self-policed as well as externally policed. So I, I, I some maybe this is wishful thinking as opposed to a prediction, but uh, and crystal balling. But but I, I see these two entities coming together for the better of both and the better of all of us who consume things every day to uh, uh, to put a uh, uh, to put increased uh, effort uh, towards uh, uh, f- food safety and food quality. And given the, uh, you know, the, and, and, I, and then I, I come back and I think of where's the other force? And the other force is going to come from the consumer. And it's just beginning in a way. I mean, if everything I understand and everything I read, it's the consumer who's going to, you know, it, whether it's labels today uh, but they're going to they're 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 going to put pressure on uh, on producers and ultimately reg- and regulators to hold producers accountable for uh, for safe food. And as our interest in fresh food, uh, uh, healthier food goes up, it's quite probable that uh, uh, they're also going to ask for uh, for safe food. And 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 because in so many areas right now, consumers want transparency. They want to look inside where things are being produced and how they're being produced or how they're being built. Uh, uh, it may ultimately be the consumer who puts the um, uh, the ultimate pressure on this whole system uh, to produce safer food. You know, I, I also think that it has to be, um, we, we have to create a, a system that's easy. I mean, right now as, as the world has changed, especially over the last two years. And, um, you know, it's, it's harder and harder to get people to work and, and, you know, it's, there's shortages everywhere. The system has to be simple for them and we have to continue to work and find a way to make it that way. I know sometimes we will talk to customers and they will almost look at it like it's going to be cumbersome to them because of all the information it's going to supply. But, that's not the idea. The idea is for that information to self-manage and, and predict. So I, I think it's critical that we stay on a path um, to, make, to make this easy for the customer, to take pressure off of the customer, yet give them the environment that they're looking for. Yeah. Uh, thanks for those uh, just thoughts. And I guess it makes me think of a couple of things. So I'm working with quite a few companies these days um, that have – 
are, are, are sort of a tying into this e-commerce discussion that are really working very heavily. I mean, and, and it hasn't been this way up until most recently. The you know the the whole COVID response has been five to eight percent pre-COVID. Five to eight percent of food and beverage was sold through e-commerce platforms of some sort. You know, whether it's Amazon or even direct to consumer platforms. Um, and with COVID, during the peak of COVID in metropolitan areas, I mean, Steve was throwing numbers out. I think it was like 40, 50 percent of the food and beverage in some of these major metro areas was being delivered by via e-commerce platforms. Right. Um, and, you know, and these are finished products now. Right. All right. So most most of these are finished products that, uh, in, the, in the COVID related uh, work. Um, so when I say finished products, they're prepackaged products coming from a grocery store or, or, the, or the current chains of distribution um, to direct to consumers or to pick up points. Um, and then, you know, and like I say, it was up to 40, 50 percent in metro areas nationwide. It's getting closer to 20 percent. All right. You know, as, as it sort of settled back into a little more normalcy. But once again, 20 percent versus five to eight percent um, is a, a mammoth growth you know, in, in, in an $850 billion segment. All right. Um, you know, food and beverage is 850 billion. And so it's sort of interesting to start thinking about some of this glass future state, because a um, couple of things, I mean, one, there's a lot of food safety issues, let alone in that, that Steve and I talked about, but then the next phase of things that's coming up and a lot of companies that I'm working with are working on their own direct to consumer farm to farm to table type of work. Uh, one company, another tech company in the middle of, of, of fab, uh, our FabCap program a couple of years ago, or is it two, it's about two years ago now, is Field of Freezer. So literally, you know, and his field started out as deer hunters looking for processors. So take your deer, you, 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 you shot and then find a processor to process it for you. But that field is being broadened into what, el- what else is on that field? Domestics, you know, beef, pork. Um, chicken, you know, things on that nature so that you can connect a farm to a consumer, which, you know, you know, and what you guys just described is sort of interesting. It'll be why it, if, if that happens, there's a whole layer of food security um, and food safety uh, that could be very interesting um, for, for, especially for your guys kind of business, honestly. I mean, I know you don't, you, you've got some smaller units and stuff, but you also have some just technologies that, you know, actually could be a pretty helpful thing in this space. Um, sort of, a, it, it, and like I say, it's it, you know, the, a lot of the models I'm seeing, and I'd love to, I'd, I'd actually love to see them happen because if you look at our supply you know, chain over the last two or three years, it's shown this vulnerability, you know, having 10 plants make up 80, 90% of our meat sources in America. Um, when the, when a, you know, I know when I built a turkey plant, they asked me how many days before that, you know, they said, Brad, you know, we're going to, we're going to give you like three months. Um, you know, you know, you have to tell me you're going to start up in three months because once we, once we hatch the eggs, you know, every two weeks they get to be, you know, in about two weeks time, they get to be too big to really efficiently run on the line. You know, that's when you build a plant like that, and, you know, whether it's Smithfield or Oscar Meyer or whatever, you, you know, those plants are built for uniformity. They're not built for right. variation. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, that was, you know, that supply chain got sort of, ever, it got exposed, obviously, because of, you know, the supply chain, you know, you know, 
blips that occurred and the plants were not running efficiently, causing real big issues. And so there are a lot of people and there's a lot of consumer interest in, hey, you know what, I'd like to buy more local. Um, and, and there's platforms popping up. There's a whole bunch of new platforms um, that are combining uh, combining that online sort of uh, drop shipping sort of capabilities and such. Um, but also, dry, you know, even like with T4, with a refrigerated control, like a, it's a, he was telling me, QB Market. It's basically an online platform that has refrigerated lockers out there. So instead of building grocery stores, they just have lockers. And, and they ship to lockers in a region. And it's all, and it's really more, anything can go in those lockers, but it's dominated by local regional, um, which means it's a lot of smaller manufacturers. All right. Which means, you know, a whole list of, you know, it, it's really going to be an interesting uh, opportunity for you guys, honestly. But I um, mean, I think just for the industry to adapt to it, you know, having, a, you know, a whole, maybe 20% of our supply chain going local, you know, what does that look like? I think we covered almost everything I can think of. Um, I think there's other areas of um, a little outside of the food industry, like nutraceuticals and things like that, that are uh, going to be very important moving forward in our business. Um, you know, there's actually uh, medical areas that we think are also going to be important in what we're doing going forward. We're getting interest in all these surgical centers and things like that that are popping up, not major hospitals, but small surgical centers, which have some high risk to them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're just just continuing to look for, uh, have new opportunities and we're having new interest in new markets. Mm-hmm. Jim, any thoughts? Uh, you know, it, it, this is sort of, I don't know whether it's it's true, but it, it just, we have a, um, uh, a, a phrase we use all the time inside, and I'll take a variation off it for political correctness here, but it's uh, it's challenge everything. Um, it, we, we um, I think we made a lot of reasonable assumptions all the way along about the product, about the technology, about the market, about the what the sales cycle would look like, what adoption rates would look like. Uh, what the best go-to-market was like, and and uh, we've learned uh, to absolutely internally we call it don't don't believe our own BS, but uh, <laughs> uh, for consumption, I'll say just challenge everything, um, and even if something worked yesterday, it's, it may not work today. So uh, one of the one of the things I think we're doing on a regular basis is challenge everything. Not not to challenge the person who generated the idea, but just to say, is that still as valid today as it was yesterday when we talked about it first? Yeah. Well, and on that note, I'll, I'll chime in a little bit because I've been part of, you know, part of the, you know, you guys for the last few years. And I do it, I applaud you guys on your structure and, and organizing, you know, your, I'm going to say your, your, ex, you know, your, your I'm going to say your, your execution team, your execution plans that you guys worked on over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I know it's not easy. I mean, plan, a plan is a four letter word that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. Honestly, I've seen that. And, you know, and, and, but I always, it always, for me, it, for the most part, it always, if, if you don't plan what ends up happening is any road will take you there. All right. And then hopefully you catch lightning in a bottle and get there fast. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, but the reality is, is, you know, I, I've, I've always, I'm a firm believer, you know, you, you get what you, you get out what you put into it. And, and a lot, a lot, a lot of that is planning. And then you bring up a great point, Jim, don't get, uh, I also see the same thing that you've just described is that my plan's perfect. I'm like, 
I wish I had that confidence. And I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's like, you know, there's no such thing as the perfect plan. It's just, you know, it's more how you respond to things and such. And, and, and if you don't listen, you will never, you know, you'll never, you know, you'll never be challenged. Right. Um, and so, you know, this idea of what you guys have been doing, not only internally, but, um, you know, externally with your customers and stuff like that, I think is, is critical. Um, and, you know, like I say, and it's easier said than done. I mean, it, you know, working on it day in and day out, like you've described, um, you know, to me, I applaud you guys for that. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. 